Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here on Thursdays, we're at the Commonwealth Club in which we tape for progressive voices, but we get the beautiful, magical view and John Zipper. He's here with us as our co-host. Yeah, I kind of come with the building. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get in unless John is here. Um, so it's good. He's here. Well, today we have a great, great program for you all, a very important discussion and one that I've, I've wanted to have for a really long time. And then, you know, headlines just a few weeks ago kind of brought something and sparked my mind a little bit. There's a presidential candidate um, who had come out publicly to support the decriminalization of sex work. And it really got me thinking because this presidential candidate has once served on the other side, having prosecuted so many uh, sex workers. And so um, that's the impetus for <laughs> for asking our two guests here today. So I'm very excited, very honored to have Tony Newman, who serves as the executive director for St. James Infirmary, as well as James Birch, who is the policy director and very fresh, very new, actually. Congratulations. Just started this year, right? Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, welcome to you both to the Michelle Meow Show. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. It's tradition, so we'll always do it. We'll start with Tony. Um, sh we'll get to know you both a little bit before we dive into the heavy conversation. Tony, if you will, start us out by sharing a coming out story for us. Coming out story. Hmm. 1983, I'm a sophomore at Wake Forest University, and I just met Maya Angelou, who was two years before me at Wake Forest. Um, I shared a conversation with her about something that I wanted to do and had so much fear in my heart of doing. Uh, I was born in North Carolina, Jacksonville, a male, and I told her that I wanted to transition to a female. And uh, she says, you just should do it. You should rise. Just rise and do it. And uh, 30 years later, I wrote a book about I Rise, the transformation of Tony Newman, based off her poem, uh, I Rise. Wow. And that inspired me to, well, it took 20 years for me to do it. I didn't really do it when she said to do it. Mm -hmm. So it took me 20 years from that date to do it, but I did it. And it, that was one of the motivating factors for me to do it and to come out to others and just tell people who my authentic self, who I really am, mm -hmm. what I'm all about. So there That's we go. so beautiful. James. Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, I definitely <laughs> I, I identify as a, a cis hetero male myself. Uh, uh, but I suppose in ways we're always uh, uh, coming out to our societies and trying to become more of our authentic selves. And and just to make you feel comfortable, we ask everyone uh, <laughs> and our allies, and the allies always have the most fun with the question of coming out. And so however you take it, you can come out as as James, as a, an activist, an advocate, uh, attorney, however, it, whatever it means to you. That's what's up. Uh, yeah. I definitely appreciate the question. Um, uh, well, uh with respect to my work in the Bay Area, uh, uh, I'd imagine to say I came out as an activist uh, when Greg Sir was fired. Uh, he was the chief of police in San Francisco, uh, and there was a hunger strike by the Frisco 500, uh, led by Equipto and, and a bunch of other folks. Uh, and I had taken some time off of activism after law school and was kind of lost uh, in terms of my direction. And their uh, energy really inspired me to get back into the movement, and I kind of was thrust into their work. We all ended up at City Hall, uh, uh, shut it down, got arrested, and uh, uh, I think through that day I started reimagining myself uh, 
as an activist and what that would look like uh, uh, considering the, the skills I bring to the table. Thank you. Wow. John. Well, set the table. How did you get to St. James Infirmary? And maybe start, and I'll start with you, Tony. Uh, explain what it is for everybody. Well, St. James is a peer and occupational health and safety free clinic to sex workers past and present. And that's a broad field with strippers, street workers, um, dancers. We, I met with uh, Stanley Wong in Florida at the HIV conference from Levi Strauss and told him that my goal was to, with the Faustin SESTA, to really have a true advocacy and policy program. And Stanley and I made a deal. He kept that deal, and then we hired James. From that, Levi Strauss, and now we've had Borealis, who's joined on board to support the program. We hired a lawyer to really take St. James to a new level to really do policy and advocacy for sex workers, both past and present. And then we got James. Awesome. Let's start uh, with San Francisco and the current status as far as policies, laws, um, when it comes to sex work. So as I understand it, I think in, in 2018, so fairly new, the city had moved forward to pass a bill that would protect sex workers um, and not prosecute, especially if they are involved or cooperating uh, with bigger crimes or violent crimes. Um, but tell us, what is the current status of San Francisco and the laws when we're talking about sex work? Uh, yeah, you have that correct. That's a policy that was worked on by the Department of Public Health, St. James Infirmary, and a number of other partners uh, over a long period of time. Uh, uh, so that policy is currently in place, uh, and as well as the San Francisco's not using condoms as evidence. We actually have a bill in front of the state legislature that would uh, make both of those uh, tenants state law. Uh, one, it would forbid uh, law enforcement from using condoms as evidence of sex work, uh, and then as well it would allow uh, sex workers who are reporting crimes of violence to be immune from prosecution for that sex work. Uh, and Scott Weiner's uh, uh, carrying that bill at the state level. When it comes to what's going on in San Francisco, things are, as they always are, a little more complicated. Well, like the policies that we are, uh, that are being promoted are definitely uh, very progressive. Uh, uh, when it comes to implementation and what's happening on the ground, if you ask the sex workers in San Francisco what their relationship is with the San Francisco Police Department, uh, they'll tell you that it's not good. Uh, and they'll report what we see, uh, you know, for decades and decades across the country, which is uh, uh, routinely, uh, uh, assaults, harassment, uh, and other instances of misconduct by police departments when engaging with uh, sex workers on the street. Go ahead, John. I was just going to ask for more on how San Francisco differs from other major cities in, San in California, but also maybe some of the national comparisons as well. Is it the same everywhere? Uh, no, it certainly is not. And, and uh, San Francisco, uh, in, in terms of the city government is more progressive in the policies that it's pushing. Uh, I think anywhere that you look, the police departments are going to be lagging behind city governments in terms of the way they push policies with respect to sex workers. Uh, um, I don't think there's anywhere where the sex workers on the street are gonna report a positive relationship with law enforcement, uh, unfortunately, at this time. I think what San Francisco has recognized is that there are a lot of common sense reforms that we can all agree on that can be pushed uh, and are beginning to push them. And I think a lot of other cities uh, and states across the country are seeing that and are encouraged by uh, a city that's demonstrating that they are at least in part ready to listen to sex workers' voices. 
I want to understand the context of the relationship between law enforcement. So staying on San Francisco and seeing that even if there is a progressive policy in place citywide, city government, that law enforcement um, continues to have this very uh, unjust relationship with sex workers and, and basically not being held accountable for their actions and not being protective of even what we're considering as like city law. What's the context behind this this history of a, a bad relationship or exchange of law enforcement uh, being abusive and taking advantage of sex workers? I think it's uh, uh, fair to say that accountability is something that folks across the country have been working on in the uh, in the context with law enforcement, whether it's uh, sex workers or or police violence uh, or a number of other situations. This is an issue that police are facing across the country, and I think activists are finally gaining footholds to bring this conversation into the light and almost force a reckoning when it comes to uh, when the policies on the ground don't match what's actually happening uh, in the streets. And, and I think the core of my question is, I mean, you know, at, at what point to a police officer is it, uh, for example, if you've, you have a condom in your purse and you, you've, got, you've been pulled over by a police officer or stopped by a police officer and you're on the streets, that's evidence for committing a crime. Um, what is that crime and how do they get away with being able to prove that, you know, that was an actual crime and, and seeing that that was perpetu that that perpetuated even, you know, more or I should say uh, bigger incarceration uh, of, you know, sex work in, in the city itself. Um, yeah. Zooming out, I think one of the things uh, to think about is, is what the goal is when it comes mm -hmm. to sex work. Right. Uh, uh, and the police law enforcement have one goal. They're trying to uh, arrest their way out of problems. That's like the only way they know how to deal with things. Like even the diversion programs that are launched in the mission right now, they have the sex worker abatement task force uh, and they are uh, arresting sex workers or detaining sex workers and saying that they could enter a diversion program out of sex work or, or face arrest ultimately. Uh, which to them seems like a great option to funnel people into a diversion program and get them off the streets. That ignores like the entirety of the realities that these sex workers are facing, right? Are they the breadwinner for a family of five? So if they enter this diversion program, they're basically uh, uh, unable to pay rent the next month. Uh, are, are they, uh, or there's a, there's a multitude of issues that they could be facing uh, that make the diversion program not as simple as law enforcement would think, right? Uh, give some, if you would, give some details. When you say a diversion program, when you first said it, I'm thinking that would, I mean, if I were doing a program to try to get someone to stop doing X, to start doing Y, that you would, you know, okay, well, if this is a, about money, then Y should have to do with getting them a job or training or whatever and get so that they have money. What is the diversion program if it's not doing that? Uh, that's, I mean, that's the intent of a diversion program, but it's uh, to match a diversion program to the realities of living as a as an impacted sex worker in San Francisco. Uh, there would need to be a type of flexibility that government programs often do not have, right? So meaning, uh, meaning, let's say I'm a sex worker who pulls uh, uh, an income that provides for an entire family. And so they want to divert me out, and then I'll get a job working for minimum wage. Essentially, I can't. I can't support my family, or perhaps two or three families. You know, there are a lot of uh, uh, breadwinners who who make significantly more money doing sex work uh, than they could in other occupations. And I don't want to glorify uh, uh, the amount of money that can be made. Not everyone is making big amounts of money, but it's also the flexibility of work uh, and in the. In the uh, realities of getting work. If you have three felonies, 
uh, and you're trying to support a family, it's much more easy to do sex work in an informal, I don't want to say easy, it might be a better choice to do sex work in an informal market uh, than to try to find a job when uh, everyone is ultimately going to tell you that you're not hireable because of your past criminal history. Now, I just wanted to say I'm an ex-sex worker myself. And 22 years ago, I was arrested for having Comdens, but I had no other way to get a job. I was transitioning. I'd been rejected by my community and my family. So the police was doing that to deter me, but that didn't deter me, and it's not going to deter any other sex workers who are survivor sex workers, and that's what I was. And then I went on from survivor sex work to be something more of a high-end um, and then there were no arrests because I wasn't working the streets and I wasn't carrying condoms in my pocketbook and I wasn't walking the block in front of neighborhoods who were telling me you're not welcome here. And that's the, they're, they're doing this to deter sex workers with these laws. And the police are told it's a crime and until it's not a crime, we are going to arrest. Mm -hmm. And this is, was New York. I live in L.A., but I work in San Francisco. It's in L.A. San Francisco is a little bit more progressive in its thinking and mentality, but the goal is still, it's a crime. And I think the bottom line is we got to work on decrim, make it not a crime, and then we alleviate that, oh, it's illegal, we have to arrest you, the abatement, get a job. Right. If, if, it's, if it's not illegal, there's no more crime. Right. And then the police will leave it alone. Right. And that's what they're telling me. The chief and the police officer saying, once you do decrim, then it's not a crime. And then you don't have to deal with the police department. Mm. That's really what you should be doing. Mm. I mean, and I think most people, when they think about sex work being legal, they think of Nevada. And yeah. I don't know the details of it, but I mean, has Nevada done it correctly, incorrectly? And, and if so, specifically what? Uh, yeah, and I think this is a good opportunity just for, for, for the uh, listeners to separate out uh, legalization from decriminalization. Uh, there, is a, there, is a, uh, there are certain conditions through which you're allowed to do sex work in Nevada. What we're hoping for here is the decriminalization of sex work, so actually removing uh, the penal codes off of the books, uh, which is a completely different situation. One of the things that we've found, if you look uh, across the world when uh, legalization has been implemented, people are always left behind, whether it's the black queer uh, sex workers who are doing survival sex work or it's people who aren't allowed in the formal markets or who uh, uh, can't find their way into the formal markets or if they, their, their immigration status isn't up to par. Like there are always conditions on sex work when it's legalized uh, and those conditions inevitably leave people out. And as a no person's left behind movement trying to carry everyone forward, it's our responsibility to make sure uh, that we don't uh, through the process of either legalization or decrim, leave anybody behind. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, the background and, and the context, because now I want to place it into um, this moment when we talk about decriminalizing sex work. We, we should answer, you know, why? Why should we decriminalize sex work and the lives that um, decriminalizing sex work would impact? And from the LGBTQ perspective, I mean, you know, uh, sex work has been survival for many of us who had have not, right? We live in a society that has not been inclusive of us as people. As um, it's not easy to just go up and get a job, and and we are oftentimes discriminated for who we are, and then more marginalized are uh, trans women of color. Exactly. 
Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, Tony, from your perspective, and, and when we stand on a platform, we talk about decriminalizing sex work, and we have to reach out across the aisle to someone who doesn't understand that, who doesn't understand, you know, sex work for survival for many of us who live outside the law, um, and, and, and present to us, you know, kind of what are some of the things that you even say it could be, some, you know, regular normal person on the street that you've never met to somebody you're sitting across at the dinner table? I was in New York, I guess, six months ago and at a Wake Forest alumni thing. And one of the deans says, uh, I read your book. Why would someone who's a graduate of Wake Forest be on 14th Street hustling and, and, and giving blowjobs and having sex with people on the street? And I said, I, I understand what you're saying, but let me tell you where I was at that time. I had two degrees and no one was hiring me. I'd sent out maybe 100 resumes. So it wasn't for the lack of effort that trans women of color are not employed at your banks, at your hospitals, doing the work, being EDs, working in mainstream. They're trying, but a lot of them don't have the educational money to go to school. So these jobs require degrees and other things that they don't have it. They're a very marginalized community that coming from poverty. So how do you survive? And I said, I survived by doing sex work. I made money to transition, to support myself, to put myself to graduate school. This is how I survive. So don't judge me on how I survive. Judge me on why people wouldn't give us a job. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why isn't society and the community at large, and I say the whole LGBTQ community, why are we not getting the jobs? Because I tried to get a job as a server, bussing tables with two degrees and was rejected based on a physical appearance. And that was, you know, discrimination. So the question is, why isn't society giving that marginalized community a chance to thrive and survive? Mm -hmm. Maybe I wouldn't have had to, to work on the streets for two years if I'd had a chance. But I had no chance and I had to survive. I have to eat. I have to live. So I did what I had to do. Um, and that's, that's what I told him. I tell it from a personal point of view because I can't speak for what others are doing. I can only speak for what I'm doing it or did it. I don't mm -hmm. do it any longer, but why? Yeah. And, then you, and then you factor in the, the, uh, your surviving, right? And you shared your personal story. And uh, the, uh, once you're thrown into the criminal justice system, that's it. So you go from not even getting a chance at a server-type job and then having the record. Being charged with solicitation. Yeah. Uh, intent to solicit prostitution. And then you have to go. We won't put this on your record. Do two weeks of community service. And then that takes away from me working because now I have to go out and do stuff, pick up trash on the street. It's just a difficult situation all the way around. And the question is, why isn't society giving this marginalized community, especially trans women of color, who are coming from poverty, a chance to survive? That's the real question. Um, I, I would just think that's going to be a huge hurdle <laughs> for the society to get over, especially yeah. this society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. this president. 
on this president <laughs> and the people who elected this president yes, and, yes. and such. I mean, do you see, we, we talked a bit about some possible legal changes in Sacramento, but do you see attitudes changing toward the root cause issue? I do. I'm from North Carolina, and I, I go there all the time. Um, and uh, my, my parents are Christians. My father's dead, but my mother's still alive, very religious. But I'm seeing people beginning to have just a different perspective, not a big turn, but a slight that what is transgender? So now we have Pose, and we have Laverne Cox, and we have Janet Mock. So we have a, a little bit more representation on TV, which is powerful, the media. And they see that, and they see the story of Pose, and people are seeing the, the girls surviving, and it's becoming a little bit more different uh, with, with the media. And I think it's, it's turned a little bit. The, the perceptions are changing. It's a lot to do, but it, it is changing, I think. Yeah, I think... The public has this fear that if we dis not the public, I mean, certain arguments at least that I've heard, uh, especially from conservative folks, if we decriminalize sex work, that it would become a public health nightmare. Or there's always there's always that argument. And for St. James and being a resource organization for sex workers of a big city like San Francisco. If you could walk us through, I mean, what's actually happening? And these people who have fears are also living in white Most, most sex workers are very safe. I carried so many condoms in my bag 20 years ago. Um, I've never had an STD. Uh, I've not been diagnosed with any diseases. I was extremely careful because my body was my selling tool. So most sex workers are very safe in their interaction with others. Um, when, when, when you're speaking about, oh, if we legalize it, oh, my God. HIV and, and STDs are beyond the rise. They're some of the safest populations around who are having sex. Booty calls are, are more likely to be more, less safer than, than an escort or a sex worker. <laughs> just to say. Yeah, for sure. Just to, to that point, uh, uh, I, I find that just to be one of, one of the most popular dog whistles that we face is this public health. I mean, really, it's the moral discomfort that folks have with sex work. And so they try to find different ways to attack it, whether it be, whether it be claiming that all sex work is sex trafficking and taking that angle of attack, uh, which we saw with FOSTA SESTA, uh, uh, or in this context saying that it's a public health uh, uh, it could launch a public health crisis. And that one, I find the easiest to, to dispel because it just doesn't bear out. Like if there's a population that you feel needs to be uh, supported by uh, governmental public health agencies, why would you push them uh, into a criminalized population that is less likely to come up to the surface and, and ask for support? Right? If you push them into the corner and have them afraid to come reach out, then how are we going to uh, address the problem? Like when the folks who are running the St. James mobile outreach van, uh, if they're ever uncomfortable doing their work because of the criminalization of their population, then we're just losing an asset. And ultimately, that's something the city should be doing itself. We, as in San Francisco, tragically just lost our public defender, Jeff Adachi. And uh, I mean, many of us in the progressive community knows um, how much of a champion he had been in holding law enforcement accountable. Uh, I'd love to hear from, from both of you. It, is there a fear? Is there a fear now? And, and it sounds like even with progressive policies, we're still having a hard time keeping law enforcement accountable. I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist thinker. I, I'm, you know, and I think we'll keep pushing and, and eventually change will come. I've seen it over time. 
with, with many things in my life. So I'm very sad to see that happen. But I think, you know, San Francisco especially is a progressive city. And I just, I, I think change will come more so here than in L.A. where I live and in North Carolina. I think we can be the leaders here. The thinking is progressive. The supervisors here are relatively progressive. So I think change can come. James, from someone who is on the public policy side and, and working with, uh, you know, uh, what's legal, what's not legal, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I want to just highlight what Tony said earlier is that, that, that law enforcement is going to uh, – uh, pursue any criminalized activity and, and arrest, and, and that's where their mind is going to be. So appealing to them to change their policies uh, uh, without the support of the Board of Supervisors or some legal change uh, is not uh, feasible. But again, uh, there's a couple things that are happening right now that I find very exciting. One, this decrim conversation is going on across the country. Decrim New York just came out recently. Uh, like you said, Kamala Harris has been feeling the pressure uh, due to uh, a number of, let's call them extremely poor decisions with respects to the sex work community in the past that uh, caused a lot of harm, an immense, immense amount of harm. And so I think when she sees that her record is uh, marred in that area and seeks to address that this early in her uh, 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 campaign for her pre for the presidency, I think it shows how important this issue is. If that's one of the first things she wanted to clear up about her record with a number of other issues that she has uh, lying out there, uh, that's very telling to us. And then second, the, the sex worker rights movement uh, is really coming together in a way that I think uh, will lead to some real changes here. I think across movements, self-determination has been recognized as the key. You know, the people who know best how to fight for their liberation are the people who are, are directly experiencing the, uh, the oppression. And so that philosophy is in full force in the sex worker rights movement, uh, and we see allies moving into their role supporting sex workers and letting sex workers dictate what these policies are going to look like, uh, and in addition, getting sex workers skilled up so they can advocate uh, in the policy arena alongside the folks who we traditionally see there. We were talking about uh, sex workers being harassed as a, you know, in an illegal or, an, or criminalized profession. Does St. James get harassed legally or? No, no, we, we, I've, I've been the ED a year. And uh, I'm, I've never received so much support from the city. We've received another $350,000 for trans people, trans people of color, from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. What about interactions with police? Um, I've met with uh, most of the police chiefs, even the one, the only one who's arresting now is in the admission. I, I won't say, I, I can't pronounce his name. It's very difficult. Um, not a bad guy, but just a law and order type fellow. It's illegal. If it's not illegal, I won't arrest you. And that's just his argument. I've been in several meetings with him, and that's just his argument. So there's no harassment coming to St. James. The chief, and actually he, would love to see, make it where we don't have to, and we'll leave it alone. But they are law and order people. And if it's illegal, they're going to arrest. And that's just the bottom line. Staying on um, James's comment and bringing up uh, Kamala Harris and and now being able to go back and point out like the serious examples of how hurtful and harmful the decisions that you know folks like yourself have made. Uh, 
every I mean, there's just so many discussions that's happening out there, and we're talking about who to support for president. And 2020 just seems it seems far away, but I think it's very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who comes out, you know, on top or, or as a front runner. I'd love to hear from both of you as leaders of our community and how you you have those types of discussions and and not to right away write these folks off because in hearing James, there's still hope, uh, you know, an opportunity, especially for someone like Kamala Harris. If she turns her position, that's powerful for us. And I, you know, I've sent an invite to Camilla Harris, to her chief of staff, um, to come to St. James, um, and, uh, lead a forum, um, to speak about her new position. And I would love to do that to all the candidates to see what their thinking is. Because this, I haven't heard anyone else speak about it but her. Bernie's not spoke about it, neither has the others. So we have 21 candidates, I think, in the Democratic field. So it would be curious to see what it, what are they thinking on, on sex work. But I have sent an invite to Camilla Harris. So let's see how that plays out. So so if you were at the table on that forum, you know, what's on, what's on the table? Is it... Uh, uh, basically, you know, very black and white, you're either for decriminalization of sex work or not? Uh, uh, that's a, that is a good question. Uh, when it comes to Kamal Harris, I, I think accountability is most important. And I've been hearing from a lot of the, uh, a lot of communities that uh, Kamala needs to take accountability for her past actions with respect to the sex work community. So that'd be the first thing on the table is what does that look like when Kamala uh, has that conversation and takes accountability? And I think honestly, we'd have to work from there like without hearing what that sounds like i think pushing past that uh is a little premature but i'd also like to say that uh uh to tony's point uh it's not lost on us that kamala harris is the only is is having her feet put to the proverbial fire in a way that other candidates are not like the misogynoir is real uh and having a black woman candidate expected to uh, be the bastion of progressivism when it comes to all these issues, when I don't hear any of these questions being asked of a number of the uh, 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 white candidates or male candidates, seems like everyone else is getting a free pass, uh, whereas Kamala is not. I think we all know when it comes to national elections, we need to be pragmatic more than anything when it comes to the candidates that we're picking. If we were in love with them, they wouldn't be running for president, which is unfortunately the situation we're in right now. So with respect to Kamala and everyone else running, it's who, who will be closest to the positions that I want to support, not who is the person that I'm championing. I think that I, I haven't seen an election in my lifetime that's looked like that's had a champ. I don't want to talk about uh, Barack Obama in 2008, but uh, uh, let's just say that it's it's time to be pragmatic and we're looking at all these candidates pragmatically. Well, we've been talking, I mean, for people, and I don't know her past on, 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 the, on this topic, so, Give some specifics. What what is her record on sex workers? For sure, uh, I think the the some of the two issues that people uh, really want to talk about are uh, her position in, uh, on FOSTA SESTA. Uh, if people aren't familiar with FOSTA SESTA, FOSTA SESTA was passed in the middle of last year, uh, ostensibly to stop uh, sex trafficking. What it did ultimately uh, was shut down all of the. Uh, uh, web hosts that were hosting sites that sex workers were using to arrange their sex work, right? Uh, the hosts were uh, basically uh, uh, the hosts were allowed to be found liable for supporting that sex work. Basically, their hosting those websites which became criminalized. So websites that are very popular, like Backpage and a number of others, shut down. Uh, 
Backpage is a little bit different. Kamala Harris was directly involved in the shutting down of Backpage before FOSTA SESTA passed, which is another thing people want to talk about. But again, uh, what's so concerning is that these were common sense issues. FOSTA SESTA being bad for sex workers is common sense. And the fact that it would uh, uh, not lead to uh, beneficial outcomes for the anti-trafficking movement uh, was very clear as well. I mean, Backpage, a couple years before it was shut down, was commended by the FBI for its cooperation uh, against sex traffickers. Uh, and then a couple years later, they shut it down as, as if you know it's the Wild West and people are sex trafficking all over the website. I don't know how much trafficking was going on on the site, but I do know that they had a history of cooperating with the FBI. So shutting down a site like that and basically taking a whole labor market uh, of sex workers uh, just deleting their, their uh, opportunities for income overnight uh, makes no sense. It's not a rational policy when it comes to sex work, and everybody who's involved knew that. And so why didn't Kamala know that uh, if she didn't? And has she learned from that since then? I think those are just really burning questions that we want to have answered. And I would like to add, we want to know, it's been in effect a year, how many arrests have they made on anti-trafficking? Uh, I, 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 I can't seem to get a number. It was supposed to be doing this particular thing, and I don't see the high numbers that I guess they were anticipating for anti-trafficking. It's, it's hurting sex workers and, so, and people who are trying to survive more than anybody else. So that's, you know, we reached out to find out what are the actual numbers of what, who you were targeting. Are you really getting these folk? And I, 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 I'm hearing no. I don't have any data behind that, but that's just what we're trying to find out. What is the data behind it? Are you arresting people for anti-trafficking? I mean, I, I just don't see the numbers. You both bring up such a, a great point. Um, it, I, the way that the media reports and even the way that the laws are written when it comes to sex work somewhat puts sex workers and sex traffickers, you know, in the same pool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and hearing from both of you, there's a clear difference. And, and the two bills that were propo proposed uh, locally and now statewide by um, Senator Scott Wiener, that, that is to hopefully, you know, separate the two and protect sex workers when they can be involved or cooperating in, um, doing the real work, which is finding the the real bad guys, if you will. The and, not, and not hurting trans women of color who are right. just trying to make a living. Yeah. To try so, to put trans women of color in the category of trafficking when they're out just trying to make a, a dollar to survive is just ludicrous. There, right. there should be a fine line. Trafficking and people are just trying to make money to survive. And that's a vast difference. Well, here's this is a fun question and, and probably one you might not be able to answer. But, you know, if I was a detective and I was working in law enforcement, I think that there would be some clear uh, characteristics or things that I would be looking for when I'm trying to bust a big sex trafficking sting versus an individual um, who's looking, you know, to, to survive. So if you could expand on that and, well, and I've talk heard to San us. San Francisco I mean, police cops say, look. Arrest is an arrest. Oh. I, I have to make arrest. I mean, I, I'm out here, and we're told we need arrest. So this is illegal. I don't even think they're differentiating what's trafficking, what's not. It's a crime, and they're arrested. And, and, and with the ways that I think it's a lot of poor legislative drafting as well, if you look at FOSTA-SESTA, I could give uh, a laundry list of examples of uh, 
how you could be found to be trafficking when you actually, you know, weren't. So like, for instance, if uh, I haven't cleared this example, I'm not 100% sure on it, but I'm almost certain that if uh, I, for instance, rented a hotel room for four other sex workers and we all used that hotel room, like I have, and, and, and one of them is under, like, and we're all under 18, uh, someone can be on the, on the hook for trafficking yes, there. Yes, that's correct. Right, uh, for renting the hotel room itself, right? But again, we're a sex worker collective here. There's no, there's no trafficking. There's no person who's taking advantage of anybody else, which is what's ostensibly, uh, ostensibly supposed to be uh, what we're looking at here. Um, but uh, when these crimes are written, they're separated into elements, Right, and and what a prosecutor is going to look at is what elements that they can prove, right, and then how much leverage they have to, you know, uh, make the accused either take a plea or not. You know, that's just the, that's the way our system works. You know, even with eighty percent of folks or more taking pleas, uh, they're going to leverage whatever elements they can prove. So if they can have you on the hook for trafficking, leverage into a reduced plea, they're going to do that. Uh, and again, so it's not necessarily the charges our folks are facing, it's the system of control, where these sex workers are not in control of their livelihood or able to, able to go about their work because of some laws that were poorly drafted that weren't even meant to address them, uh, are sweeping them up and making their lives nearly impossible to uh, make the incomes to allow themselves to survive. Do you think that decriminalizing sex work could greatly impact um the effectiveness of being able to address sex trafficking, like the really horrible things that are happening in sex trafficking and really help victims of sex trafficking. Yes. Uh, unless you wanted to take that. No. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, if we look at, again, I think if you look at things like the, uh, the closure of Backpage and Redbook before it, two websites that were used to coordinate sex work, when those websites close, uh, a whole avenue to attacking... Uh, sex trafficking closest because your closest allies, the folks who have the information that you want, those web hosts, uh, their behavior has become criminalized. So they're no longer going to be cooperating with law enforcement whatsoever. Second, if we look at uh, places, you know, if we look at uh, outcomes in New Zealand or New South Wales versus anywhere else where, where those are the two places where sex work has been decriminalized uh, versus other places, uh, they are doing better than we are. Uh, uh, and they have the opportunity to engage in so many uh, really smart strategies to combat human trafficking that we can't employ here because we can't work with sex workers because they're a criminalized population, right? They're not gonna work with the government to, uh, uh, they're less likely to work with the government to attack human trafficking if they know they could be criminalized as part of that endeavor. It's just common sense. And so if we have them able to know that they are uh, protected by the government instead of criminalized, the likelihood of cooperation is much greater. Because a trans woman can invite another trans woman from New York to a house in San Francisco. That woman from New York is doing sex work. The cops can come in and say, oh my God, you are trafficking trans people from New York when it's just a friend who's coming to help another friend. There's no trafficking going on. So that's why decrim, I think, I believe with all my heart, will be beneficial. And then just one more thing to say on that is, is, is it's, not, uh, it's not Tony and I who like sat in a room and said, hey, decrim is what we want. Uh, this is like everything else we come up with is, is sex worker informed, right? When we talk to the sex workers throughout the state, when we talk to sex workers throughout the country, they say, not legalization, we want decrim, and these are the reasons why. It's like my job as an advocacy director isn't to come up with the solutions, it's to amplify the voices of the sex workers who have been saying forever 
what the solutions are. And we met three weeks ago with the ACLU, Swap LA, and several other organizations to figure out how, as a collective, collaborative group, do we do this? And this is what they are saying, and, and we agree that decrim is the way to go. We've talked a bit about uh, uh, sex workers who are themselves perhaps undocumented. It's kind of, have, if you will, two strikes against them as far as any potential interaction with police. Can you give us any sense of, I mean, like how large of a population we're talking about, how, what, what percentage or anything like that, and what sort of issues do you see them dealing with? We've been asked that many times. I don't, in St. James at this point, don't have any data on how many immigrants who are involved in the sex work trade. At this point, I just don't have any data to give you any factual comments on that at this time. But but it's the same issue we talk well, about when we talk about sanctuary cities. It's like they are legal, right? Wanting and then them to be able to it's illegal to do sex exactly. work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's a double whammy, which is it's hard for them. But we, I don't have any data on that. We are not seeing immigrant sex workers, to my knowledge, at a high level at St. James. Well, thank you to you both for doing the work and for the advocacy and the education. And you can tell even just the 40 minutes that we've been sitting and talking about this, there's so much to say, to inform, and to explore. Um, it's now time for our audience to get engaged and uh, ask questions if you have them. So our amazing big audience, you have a question? Great. John's walking around with the mic. Uh, I'm still a little confused at the difference between legalization and decriminalization. Could you clarify that? For sure. When we talk about legalization, we're talking about creating a legal framework to allow for sex work to take place. So for instance, they could say sex work is allowed in brothels or it is allowed under these conditions, right? And not only the conditions of where the work takes place uh, are of concern, but also uh, who is allowed to do that work. To do sex work, you must have to X, Y, and Z. And those conditions, uh, if not sex worker informed, can be really, really limiting as, uh, with respect to who is able to do sex work uh, freely under the new legal system. And then when it comes to decriminalization, again, it's like we just deleted the crimes uh, from the penal code. So whatever you're doing on the street, it's just no longer illegal. There's no longer uh, a prostitution statute that says if you do X, Y, Z, you're liable uh, to you have committed the crime of prostitution. Does that make sense? So it, it's the, the regulation that comes with legalization. Uh, yes. And, and to be clear, there are, there are forms. That, I mean, they can, as they always do, the, 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 the state is very adaptive. And so now that decrim is the mantra, I'm sure there are ways that you can make decrim look just as limiting uh, as a legalization system, right? Like not necessarily getting rid of the whole code, but uh, um, actually haven't workshopped how the government could use that to their advantage. Uh, but uh, what I always see is when we come up with a new strategy like decrim, they find some ways to put levers of control into that system so it's not just uh, a population that they no longer have control over when this population has been controlled since essentially the beginning of time. Not quite a question, but I just um, came f because it's exciting for me to see other uh, transgender women who are executive directors of nonprofits. I, I run one myself in Oakland that is um, a fairly conservative, volunteer-driven, faith-based human services nonprofit. And um, I was 
touched by your coming out story because mine was so much easier, and I know that has a lot to do with the privilege of my race, um, but also about the times. Um, I came out on the job um, in my late 50s, just a year, less than a year ago, and it's gone incredibly well. Um, so it's, it's very nice to see other, other transgender leaders succeeding despite the hurdles that you've had to have that I was uh, so fortunate not to have had. And I work with other trans leaders. I mean, we just took over Transgender Justice Intersex Project. Uh, run by Janetta Johnson. We just took over the Compton Transgender District with their physical sponsors, run by Aria Saeed, uh, Todd's Coalition, run by Kira Jackson. So St. James is trying to foster an atmosphere for trans women of color, trans people to thrive. Um, all they need is an opportunity. And, and I think if we got that, we could thrive. So we'll see how it works. I have the easiest question. Why is it called St. James? I assume it's not named after James. No, it's, it's named after Margot St. James uh, in 1999, who saw um, sex workers getting arrested, getting mistreated by the police. And um, I think Gavin Newsom was around then and went to the city. And the city started um, supporting St. James in 1999. And that brings me June 2nd of this year. We're having our 20th year anniversary with all the founders of St. James um, at Terra Gallery. Uh, feel free to go to stjamesinfirmary.org and buy your tickets and sponsorship. We're having Jennifer Holliday, Lawrence Beeman, Margot Gomez, um, and Sister Roman, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, will be there to have a party. So there we go. I want to end just there, but we do have a few more minutes. Um, uh, well, I so had to we'll, get that so in. we'll repeat it. We'll repeat it again. I definitely okay. uh, want to attend that party for sure. Okay. And and it's along the lines of being supportive to sex workers. Um, if you know, like going back to, I think what I'm trying to do with this program and having you both on is at least bring up the the myths right like people who actually don't know of a sex worker or because it's not it's even if they do know of a person uh, that person might not be open to them about you know their sex work life because there's such a stigma behind it um that so something james had said about you know the differences between the legal framework versus deleting the entire you know penal code and decriminalization when we talk about the safety on the street, some of the stuff that I picked up and that I heard um, from Tony is that it actually in sex work for the majority is pretty pretty safe. Uh, lots of people have this myth um, or this idea in their mind that you know sex on the streets is really unsafe, and so we would need some kind of legal framework to at least protect sex workers on the streets. Yeah, they could become victims themselves of violence. Well, now, sex workers, there's a difference between escorting and sex work on the streets. You're running across violence. You run across the police, um, all kind of things. Um, so sex work on the street is, is very different. It's more survival. That puts when you're out there trying to make money and you have no other way to make your rent, you put yourself sometimes in situations that are not, the healthiest, but my point was that people are afraid if it was to become decrim or something, my God, disease would spread. They're going to give you AIDS, and it's, that's, just not, that's just not true. It's just not true at all. I find sex workers to be some of the safest, people who actively participate in sex and take care of their bodies much more so than my friends who are on a duck friend finder 
and doing booty calls. And these are professionals who, like, I met a guy last night and blah, blah, blah. So um, I find that they're way more safer than just a casual yeah. person um, in society yeah. uh, with sex. And, and to expand on that and that, you know, um, sex workers' lives do matter and, and the type of violence that uh, one would probably think about in their mind that those those types of crimes should still be punishable you know if if so what we're we're not saying that if we were decriminalizing all of sex work that then those lives aren't protected with other laws that you should abide by uh, absolutely right and we're not saying that anything goes now that that that, that uh uh, sex work is decriminalized. If someone's uh, assaulted or violently assaulted, there's obviously uh, that's a uh, crime. right. That's a crime. Uh, uh, so yeah, definitely want to be uh, clear on that. Decrim doesn't just mean that we'll turn you know the mission into the wild west, which is which is the <laughs> which is the which is the which is the, which is the fear that everybody has. You know, they see uh, uh, in the middle of last year after FOSTA SESTA was passed, a lot of sex workers who used the internet to arrange their sex work uh, tried to avail themselves of, of, of street sex work. Uh, and so people in the mission saw three to four times the number of folks out on their street corners. And they thought that that number would increase forevermore and that there would just be sex work outside their house 24-7 and then that wasn't the neighborhood that they wanted to live in or, or buy their house on. Uh, and that kind of moral panic uh, is definitely real. But again, it just doesn't bear out in the realities of what's going to happen, right? Sex work is happening whether it's legal or not. Uh, the numbers are going to be, you know, relatively consistent whether it's legal or not. And been and happening for hundreds. Of, this is not a new phenomena that's happening in the mission. And I bought a house. People have been doing sex work for hundreds of years. The interaction and exchange and bargaining of A for B, whether it's I need a, a room to stay, whether I need a meal tonight, whether I need $50, that bargaining has been going on for a long time. Uh, and then, and then to add to that, what, I haven't seen any time that it's been criminalized that has been a benefit to that society or community. It's not like criminalization works or the people who are advocating criminalization can point to any model or case study that says, see, this is why we want crim, right? It's just one of those blind criminalizations of something that people don't necessarily understand or have uh, moral discomfort with. I don't know if any of you have read uh, Karen Abbott's book, um, Sin in the Second City. I have not. I, it's a fascinating Fascinating book, and it's it's about these two women from I don't know Nebraska or the Dakotas who moved to Chicago back in I think the 1880s or 1890s, and they open up a brothel, and it was just it, it it's Karen Abbott is a historian very much along the lines of Eric Larson and you know Devil in the White City sort of stuff where it's 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 history it's she's telling real stuff but it reads like a novel and it's just fascinating because it's in describing the attitudes at that time, it was one of those things that was illegal, but the mayor, everyone, I mean, this was, it was much more of a European red light district sort of approach than, um, you know, making it totally illegal. And then in the early 1900s, then when you had the reforms and, and you know, the, the reformers, progressives and such like that, progressives at that time very much were basically middle-class Republicans who were out to reform and, and religious and such. But uh, it was in, it, it's an interesting book. I would recommend anyone to read it just to see how in just a century attitudes really changed quite a bit about it. There's a, there's a similar book from the Bay Area. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a collection of letters. I believe it's just titled Alice. I don't know the name in its entirety, but it was 
based on a letter that was submitted to a newspaper in the early 1900s to the same effect. It was a sex worker reporting on their experience, and what it led to was hundreds of sex workers writing in with their experiences as well. And so what the authors of this book tried to do is verify the, as many letters as possible and put them in a uh, kind of anthology. So it speaks to the same thing. In the early 1900s, we're dealing with the same situation we're dealing with now, uh, a moral panic in response to sex work, uh, 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 ham-fisted laws put into place that make sex workers' lives dangerous, uh, and then uh, sex workers attempting to organize to make a rational response and make work safe again. And and the same uh, boogeymen were put up, which was trafficking, and you know that white slavery was the thing that you know innocent white women were being you know trafficked off, and and uh, that was the excuse used to push a lot of the legislation. Well said. They called it the, it's the man, they, technically the Man Act, they called it the White Slavery Act. Yeah. And most of my clients were white, upper middle class men who worked in these banks and, and did great jobs. So Only in New England Patriots, perhaps? <laughs> no, I, I didn't see him. But I mean, but, you know, it, 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 it's, just, it, it's just a contradiction. You know, I, I saw police officers and all kinds of things, and yet other police officers are arresting, and I've seen, it's, it's just, it's, it's almost comedy. And bringing it to the, the conversation that we had today, uh, share with us the experiences that you have in being the advocate. Uh, obviously, decriminalizing sex work and, and standing on a platform and advocating for this, it's not, actually, it's not just sex workers that you're advocating for. And the issue is not just the LGBTQ com community, although a good number of it is. We're a part of this community, and, and so many other communities have to come together um, to support the idea. And I'd love to hear from you be because, again, like people have all these ideas of what it might be, and they put a picture of who a sex worker is. Sometimes that picture are, um, you know, the, the very helpless, vulnerable immigrant um, who is, a, you know, being trafficked. Yeah, that that's in the news a lot, or the image um, are people who are committing crimes and oftentimes have darker skin color and and should you know and then are they are incarcerated. And so the media representation is so horrible and so skewed. I'd love to for as we end and wind down, hear some truths from both of you in how communities have come together to speak on decriminalizing sex work. Well, here at St. James, we serve trans women, we sell LGBTQ, we serve sex workers who work in strip clubs who are heterosexual. So we are open to all sex workers, all races, all genders, all nationalities. And we're just at this point trying to build a coalition of partners. That's one of the main reasons that I had this impressive young man to our right to build that coalition and to get partners who are just not uh, black immigrants, but white from a broad spectrum to build a coalition and to, to speak on who we are and what we're trying to do. Because there's a lot of misconceptions. And that's why we're here. That's why we came here today, to hopefully alleviate that to maybe someone like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I learned something new. So. Uh, for sure. Uh, uh, you know, being on this job for a relatively short time, one of the things I've learned that has been burned into my head is that sex work uh, uh, 
looks uh, infinite different ways, right? Just like everyone has their own unique human experience, uh, every sex worker's experience is their own. And so for anyone to try to categorize sex works uh, into what society wants it to look like, what advocates want it to look like, what the uh, media wants it to look like, uh, is missing out such a wide range of the experiences of sex workers. And so uh, as Tony said, one of our goals, uh, immediate goals as we begin this push towards decrim is to get everyone to the table, understand their realities, and understand what their priorities are. You know, what, uh, what the burning needs for a sex worker who's arranging, you know, $5,000 weekends out of their apartment are completely different than someone who's doing street-based sex work when they can't get a, a, a day laboring position outside of the Home Depot. Those are completely different realities with completely different needs. And to be real, uh, different levels of oppression that they're facing and different levels of urgency. And so at St. James, like right now, my job is to uh, understand everything that's going on uh, and lift up and amplify the voices of all those sex workers who want to participate in this movement for decrim uh, and skill them up so they can sustain that work if they so choose. And that could be the mother, a white woman of two, just trying to make money to pay her rent, or that trans woman on the street who's just trying to survive who's homeless. I feel so lucky to be a San Francisco resident and to be you know, in the presence of both of you and, and just the work that you do. And hopefully, and I hear you have hope, but that the kind of work that you do will also transform to the entire country um, and cities and impact, you know, lives outside of just San Francisco. But how proud are we to have these two leaders who are doing what they're doing? Um, so thank you to you both. And so, Tony, if you could just remind us again about that <laughs> fancy gala. Sell my gala. Yeah. Uh, um, we're having our 20th year anniversary on June 2nd at Terra Gallery with uh, the lesbian comedian Margot Gomez, original dream girl, I'm telling you, Jennifer Holiday, Lawrence Beeman from America's Got Talent, Sister Roma, and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence will be there. And Mikatron, who's a local San Francisco artist, will be at an after party, 6 to 11 p.m. You can go to stjamesinfirmary.org. Our goal is to raise 100 grand to support this work. Um, we won't be doing it again until the 25th year. So your support is greatly appreciated. Wow. All right. We'll be there. Well, let's give a round of applause for our two incredible, awesome guests. Thank you. And thank you to you all, to you all for joining us here on Thursday um, and taking a break from the rain. The Michelle Miao Show is here every Thursday at the Commonwealth Club. We have some great guests coming up, so make sure you check out commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for the schedule. Next week, singer-songwriter Matt Elber will be here. He'll do a number before he heads to Feinstein. Feinstein's at the Nico to do two performances, and then we're so lucky. We're so, we work so hard on this, and I've been such a huge fan of his for so long, but we're lucky to have B.D. Wong and the cast of The Great Leap um, from playwright Lauren Yee's, or Lauren Yee, yeah, who, they'll be at the ACT Theater, so B.D. Wong is coming to the Commonwealth Club uh, and some great big familiar faces from other nonprofits who will talk about, you know, nonprofit work. Anyway, thank you to you all for supporting the Michelle Miao Show. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, 
leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders.